Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Jason Coleman, and you are listening to Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. And welcome to another episode of Things That Make You Go, hmm, I am your one-man book club, Jason Coleman. Thank you so much for joining me. If any of you are new to the program, what I try to accomplish in my podcasts is I mostly review, well, I don't even know if review is the right word, but I read books that deal almost exclusively nonfiction that deal with kind of behavior, psychology, decision-making, heuristics, um, Mostly just sort of nonfiction books that deal with self-improvement. And what I try to do is I just try to read the books and give you my own perspective about how I interpret the information, how it might be applicable to your own personal lives and, and what I what I personally got out of it. And hopefully the information might motivate you to actually read the book yourself or if it just doesn't sound like something you're interested in, uh, then you'll skip it altogether. But either way, um, I'm always happy when anybody is willing to spend a little bit of time listening to what I have to say. Uh, I'm a public school teacher by trade. I I teach seventh grade, um, mostly English. Sometimes I teach social studies, drama, and debate, and a few other things. So uh, maybe it's just my knack for wanting people to listen to me, which is uh, why I made this podcast. But regardless, uh, you're here, and I'm I'm glad you are. Uh, so, So thank you. Now, today's book that we're going to be reviewing is called Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. I became, I, I wanted to review this book because I've read a few other books by the Heath brothers, Dan and Chip Heath, and they deal a lot with um, why people think the way they do, uh, a lot to do with habits, which I'm, I'm very into, um, and I... I, I really was hoping that this book would be, you know, um, just as good as their other books, such as the Like Switch and and a few other of their books. And I I was in, I was interested that only one of the brothers, Dan, actually wrote this particular book. So I'm happy that I'm I was able to that you know the book was still pretty good from my own perspective, based upon since it was only one brother who actually wrote the book this time. So that's good. Now, what what Upstream is really about is how do you, instead of, instead of handling problems, I guess, reactively after they happen, how do we tackle problems proactively? How do we stop problems before they even happen? And, and why is that such a difficult concept to do? And the author, I think, lays out a pretty good argument. I'm going to go ahead and try to just give you some of my thoughts based upon the writing of of what he's he's saying. So basically what the problem is is that and I think you if you read um if you read the book Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert, he talks a lot about this too is he says that the reason well I'm I'm, ta- I'm quoting Dan Gilbert here is when uh, Dan Gilbert says that the reason why people who win the lottery 
aren't necessarily any happier than people who are blind, for example, is because our brains, it they just reacclimate ourselves to our circumstances. So when you first have that novelty of becoming rich, then yeah, you're right. For probably six months, a year, maybe even two years, you're probably going to be experiencing a lot of you know, of amazing happiness. But after that, uh, you're not really going to see your life as being different anymore. You're, you're just going to, you know, (laughs) you know, being rich and powerful is just going to become your, your baseline of how you, how you perceive yourself as a person. So, you know, you're, you're just going to kind of relapse back into that, that baseline of happiness. I can kind of speak a little bit from personal experience and even recently, um, because I'm a school teacher, I don't work in the summers. And during like the first week or two of this summer, I'm definitely on a happiness spike. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm trying to do a million different things. I'm reconnecting with old people who I used to know. Um, but I will say about usually about the third or fourth week into the summer, I'm still having a good time. I'm still relaxed. It's still fun. But I'm not feeling the same way as I did during that first week when I was let off. Um, I'm starting to become reacclimated into my new uh, my new lifestyle, so to speak. So now let me pull this back full circle again. The reason why the author is is saying this is because this can have a negative effect too, meaning that once a problem becomes ingrained uh, into your psychology, you might not necessarily see it. You might still see it as a problem, but it isn't necessarily a problem that that needs to be dealt with. Um, <laughs> let me give you an example. Uh, so when I was growing up, my grandmother had this television that this this large box television CRT with really poor quality that was broken. And it's a really large TV. It was, it's hard to get rid of and what they decided to do is rather than just get rid of this television uh, that's not working and, I don't know, call some movers or get the neighborhood people to help or or something, I don't know. I know it was going to be a pain. What they decided to do is they just bought another smaller television and put it on top of the big wooden paneled television. So I think that's a great example of every day they saw this television they knew that this was this thing was broken, it's taking up space, it doesn't look very attractive, you know, you just need to get rid of it. But after a while, you become, and this is what the author talks about, he talks about problem blindness, where you don't even necessarily see, you quite literally don't see the TV anymore, because the problem has become so ingrained into your life. And he said that's, that's kind of one of the problems that we have, why we don't take action because it becomes, he calls it problem blindness, where we know it's there, it's staring us right in the face, but we've just lived for so long with the problem that we, we've we just kind of learned, we've learned to, what's it called, willful ignorance, where you, you know it's there, but you're just not acknowledging it anymore, and and that can be a big problem for for trying to to change things. It it sort of reminds me of the book um, Catch Twenty Two um, by Joseph Heller. And it, it, I'm, I'm I'm sorry, I'm reaching really way back into my memory here. But during the book, there's a scene where um, one of the officers has died uh, in the dormitory, and they don't know what, and nobody knows what to do because the soldiers want the 
administrators to come take the deceased soldier's stuff out of the room. And the administrators want the soldiers to remove the dead soldier's stuff out of the room. And so it's kind of like this finger pointing contest, okay, about, you know, who who's responsible for, for removing the soldier's stuff. And, and of course, you know, um, they're just both pointing at each other and, and the, the soldier's stuff never actually winds up getting removed until some new soldiers come in and take their place and just remove this stuff altogether. Uh, another good example, I'm sorry, I have to share another one, reminds me of is there's an old Dilbert comic where Dilbert uh, wants to get a new computer. But in order to get a new computer, he has to get rid of his old computer. And he can't figure out how to get rid of it. The maintenance people said it's not under their contract because it's hazardous material. Um, his personal assistant won't take the computer because he says he might, you know, he might risk injuring himself somehow. And so finally, Dilbert gets so frustrated that he builds a catapult in order to send his computer out of the window. And I, I thought that just perfectly encapsulates how when a problem is just so, it's been with us for so long, we just don't necessarily, uh, I don't, I just, maybe it's like we've just kind of given up all hope uh, altogether. So, um, he talks about how one of the ways that we can see some positive change that goes along with this is if you take the the Chicago public schools, and I don't know how much of you know about the Chicago public schools, but they're they're cited a lot in in education research. And I only know this because I do have a doctoral degree in in education, and so I've been exposed to a lot of this data. And Chicago public schools are constantly cited as being this, um, I don't know, like this miraculous study in improvement. Um, and there was definitely a lot of improvements in certain areas. So, but, but what they say, what they, what they really wanted to do is they wanted to create a, a way to, um, to gauge student data. They said that's the big thing is they're going to be measuring data all the time. And... You know, I think there's an old proverb that says uh, that which is is measured is improved. So and so, you know, eventually over time, I don't know, you know, how lasting it was or, you know, what the overall effects were going to be. But they said, okay, we implemented these. This is what our baseline data was. We implemented these changes. We saw this amount of improvement. And so I feel like that is really important because I'll take my own, you know, personal school for example. Every year there's a problem with our 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 parents and teacher. We do we do a conference week where you know we invite in parents and we just talk to them about their their students, their kids, and there's always been a problem because they feel as if the conferences are very negative or they feel as if. It's just repeating like a bunch of information that the parents probably already know about what their kids are doing wrong. And so <laughs> every year we're saying, hey, why don't we try this? Or, hey, why don't we try that? And I mean, I've been at this place for a while now, over a decade. And, you know, pr- pretty much we just keep having the same conversation over and over again. And th- and I, I finally made the point that the reason why we have to keep just experimenting is we don't really have any metric. We don't, we don't really know, you know, whether something is improving or not. We have no tool to gauge that. So you might personally think that something is going really terrible. I might have, I might have thought it went really great. So, 
you know, there's no, we, we, you know, until we actually start using a survey or until we start using some anecdotal evidence or, or something, um, we don't know, you know, um, but again, <laughs> then we run back into the, the finger pointing problem, which is where they're like, okay, well, who's going to, who's going to make the survey? How many people are we going to give it to? How do we know it's going to be reliable? And, you know, then everybody pretty much is throwing up their hands like, well, that's not my responsibility. That's not my responsibility. And the author, the author talks about that, too, that very often the people who wind up changing some institution are exactly the same people who it, they didn't necessarily feel that it was their sole responsibility to begin with, but they, they made it their responsibility, and I am I am absolutely positive that there is some truth to that, that that if some change does take place, at least on a small organizational level, it's usually somebody who just is really fed up and they take it upon themselves in order to create a crusade to to change things. Um, like, for example, uh, my, my dad, I remember, was telling me many years ago that there was pretty much like only one person who led this crusade to get led taken out like out of gasoline apparently that's why they have the term unleaded fuel because they actually used to use lead uh within fuel and they said you know it was it was toxic it was creating you know lead poisoning so on and so forth so so the so this one guy for some reason i mean i I don't know you know what why he felt personally obligated to engage in this but but he did and and that's you know what drove what drove the change so in some ways, it's kind of scary if you think about it. Like, we basically have to rely on these personal heroes uh, <laughs> in order to to change things. And and normally, you know, the, the author talks about how this whole concept of, of heroism, even if something does change, it's normally a sign of, of a failure of the system. And he talks about the concept of affirmative action, for example. And he says, okay, so you have some black kid from, I don't know, Baltimore or something who winds up getting straight A's, goes to Harvard. And we want to praise the kid. Um, and we want to say, oh, look at all this. Look at this wonderful example and stuff like that. But but in some ways, even though it's a personal triumph we really need to see this as a bigger indicator of the system failing at large. You know, why, why do 99.99% of, you know, black kids from urban cities, why do, do they not go to prestigious universities? Why, why is that the case? Okay. We, we rather focus on that one person who was able to make it through all the struggles, all the trials, all the tribulations, rather than saying, well, well, wait a minute. Why is everybody else failing? What what happened here? Um, I've seen that in my my wife, who is a physician, has also seen that as well um, at her hospital. Where, uh, well, I'll just speak for myself. You know, working in education is every year. You know, I've been doing this for over twenty years now, and every year I've seen new educators who are probably putting in 50, 60 hour work weeks. They're constantly starting new clubs. They're, you know, starting new organizations. And it works out pretty well for a while, I think. But usually by the by their third or fourth year, they're, they start to transition away from that. They feel tired. Um, maybe they're getting a little bored. 
and they just want to start to try to create some distance between their their work life and their home life. And from my own experience, supervisors tend to hold these people up as as models of of great instructors, and maybe they are, but but I think there's there's a bigger failure at hand here. It's the same with you know people who are working round the clock uh, in the medical field as well. Is well, why is this necessary? What what is going on here? What's the deal? And the author, who also seems pretty uh, involved with public education, he actually talks about the program Donors Choose, which is a program I've used many times as well. If any of you get a chance, it's it's really amazing. Um, it's a it's DonorsChoose dot uh, and what what basically it is is that you can contribute money directly to classrooms to buy certain classroom materials. Um, to help teachers who, who can't get the funding from other places. I've used this many times. I've gotten computers. I've gotten books. I've gotten all kinds of classroom materials. It's been great. It's fantastic. I, I love it. Um, and I just, you know, I, we've had very generous, you know, people in the community and out of the community who have donated to my classroom over the years. But the author brings up a good point. And the author is a big member of Donors Choose. He donates um, you know, his money and his time and, and you know, he, he holds them up as a model. But he says, why do we need donors choose to begin with? Like, why is that even a thing? I mean, why aren't classrooms being properly funded with all the materials they need? You know, we, we have to ask ourselves that. Um, I love when I see an organization that helps the homeless or helps abused women or whatever the case is. But, but why do we need those organizations is, is what I want to know. So this is something that that we have to talk about. And I think what the author, you know, is saying is is once again that we there's a few hurdles that we have to overcome. We have to overcome the notion that we don't have a personal responsibility to do something. Everybody has a personal responsibility to do something. Um, we need data. If we're not using any data, then we're we're just sort of sort of guessing. And then the last problem that he talks about um, that I, I want to focus on is this whole, uh, this, this is the most, I think it's a little complicated, but I think it's really the most interesting is he talks about this notion of tunneling. And basically a tunnel is when you become, he says it's not necessarily the larger problems that are bogging people down. It's very often the smaller problems that are getting in the way. So, for ex- you're just basically being overwhelmed by smaller problems. So, let, let me give you an example. So, let's say I have an hour of, um, of time at work that is supposed to be dedicated to, to planning, you know, for lessons. And this is really the time that I should be using to make great lessons, to improve them, to, you know, collaborate, to research, to daydream, to come up with something really great. But it's not usually what happens. What usually happens is I have to return an email. I have to um, respond to uh, a parent's request for something. I have to send back a note to my principal about uh, some meeting for next week. Um, I have to, you know, fix, uh, you know, a broken leg on the desk. Um, and I have so many small tasks that I have to get to that by the time I finally am like ready to do that, that planning that I'm talking about, you know, I only have 10 or 15 minutes left before my next class is coming in. 
So, so that's what that's what they're that's what the author is saying here is that we have to ask ourselves what percentage of our time are we focused? Are we tunneled into all of the small problems that we have to deal with throughout the day that we never really have an opportunity or set aside that time in order to tackle the bigger problems and being able to to focus on these larger issues is so important because it's not necessarily change that's going to take place when you you deal with the problem after it's happened. The, the author's big thesis is that change usually happens when you take care of the problem before it happens. And And I know this to be true because in my graduate research for education, I actually studied um, classroom behavior problems um, when students are, are misbehaving um, you know, how, how does this affect teachers? How are, why are teachers better at it? Some are better at it than others, so on and so forth. And what the research shows is that there's not a lot of difference between experienced and inexperienced teachers or effective or ineffective classroom managers, as we call them in education, when it comes to after a behavior infraction has already happened. So for example, Let's say some student blurts out a bunch of uh, inappropriate language. Now, the way that the effective and ineffective you know, classroom manager handles this is pretty similar after the behavior has already taken place. So what separates the effective from the ineffective manager? Well, the effective manager basically sets up routines in behavior programs in their classroom already so that there's already rewards and consequences ahead of time um, and there's very clear expectations ahead of time. And that's why they're able, to, it's not necessarily that they know how to handle infractions any better than anybody else, but they're better at stopping them before they happen. And that is the key. How do we stop this issue even before it happens? And we're starting to see this a bit in the medical field as well, um, in the sense that where there's now been, instead of like focusing so much on you know, drugs and medication and, you know, surgeries and stuff like that. There's much more of an emphasis on everyday health where, you know, when you develop a relationship with, with you know, a nutritionist, um, you know, your own personal doctor, and they're basically helping you to, uh, you know, live a, a healthier lifestyle, to get enough sleep, um, to eat healthy, to reduce your stress levels, then, that over a longer period of time will will confer benefits in the form of not having to manage as much long-term illness down the road. It's not going to work for everybody. Some people, you know, they're going to have genetic problems, okay? Um, there's going to be issues that are just un, unsolvable. We, we get that. We understand that. But for the majority of people, um, you know, their long-term health can be improved by taking steps now, it I guess it's kind of similar to how you want to think about your retirement. Um, I mean, a lot of people they deal with retirement by the last few years before they retire, they just try to save all the money that they possibly can. But you know, in reality, the much better way to do it would just be to save a little bit or as much as you can when you're younger, and you know, over time, those small investments will accumulate to give you more financial security into your your old age okay so i've went on long enough um i definitely feel like i always try to conclude the podcast by by talking about how 
whether or not the book has personal benefits to me. I feel like the Greeks and philosophy, I know I say this a lot on my podcast, where the Greeks didn't see philosophy as some academic subject that you know you're supposed to write papers about and, and have theoretical discussions. They saw philosophy as something that you would be using on an everyday basis to improve your life. And that's how I feel about reading these books, that if they don't have some practical application into my own personal life, then I then I don't really care. I, I, I don't really feel like the book was useful. And so for this particular book, I, I definitely feel like it does. And what I'm going to try to do, especially, you know, teaching during this quarantine, this pandemic, is I, I have to understand how certain problems are happening with with my students. Like, are they not getting the information? Um, maybe I need to make another, you know, more videos. Uh, maybe I need to figure out more ways for them to do things independently. Uh, Maybe I have to have more focused time. I'm not really sure. But instead of me addressing the problem after it's happened, um, I need to take the I need to take the data from what's going on this year and make a a progressive plan going forward for subsequent years for, for like next year, the following year after that to see if there's going to be you know, ways that I can improve things. But again, none of this is ever going to happen until I actually start using some form of data as a metric. Otherwise, I'm, 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 I'm guessing. I have no idea whether it's being effective or not. So that's Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen by Dan Heath. If you give a chance, go ahead and pick it up. And also, if it's not too much trouble for you, like I said before, I'm very flattered whenever anybody um, is willing to listen to my podcast. And thank you again for making it all the way to the end. If you get a chance to to give me a a nice rating on either iTunes or Stitcher or Amazon Music, um, that'd be really fantastic. It's always just very validating for me when I'm able to grow my audience and know that, that other people are interested in what I have to say. Okay, well, that is all for now. I'm not sure what my next book will be, but I will be back in a few book, a few books, a few weeks with a new book for you guys. Until then, happy reading.